Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah. I am Steven. And, uh... If it sounds weird, it's because Brad's not here. Sounds weird, Brad's not here. But, um, today in the podcast, oh my god, one of my favorite guests, we did an episode with him last year, he did our last live podcast and performed. I just saw him perform twice this weekend, and then he's back on the podcast again, Emilamus. He plays in Grails, Holy Sons, Ohm, and his... The most recent record he put out is by his this two piece Lilacs and Champagne, and um, their new record is out on Temporary Residence, same re- label that puts out United Nations, and it's called yes. Midnight Features Volume Two, Made Flesh, and it's um, Tim, him, and uh, ugh, what's the other guy's name, Alex, and they basically find old records, um, and just sample them, and it's kind of hip hop psychedelic. They just basically find these old obscure records and kind of make something new out of it. And uh, we They're like DJ Shadow, sort of like DJ Shadow. And we were supposed to. Um, we, I don't know if you remember this, Stephen. We um, we when we did the live podcast, he started telling some story about Jimmy Fallon, and then was yeah. like, "Wait, I'm going to come on the podcast, and I want to tell this separately." We did this whole podcast, and then like at the very end, we're like, "Oh, I forgot to talk about that." Like, we had so much to talk about. And then after this, we ended up hanging out for three more hours. Awesome. Like, we were just, like, just kept hanging out. And it actually, the piece, actually wrote a piece about it. And um, it's up on Noisy now. If you just um, search Lilacs and Champagne or my name, so Noisy. Is, is Lilacs and Champagne going to go on tour with I Am Champagne? Well, yeah. So that's so funny. Yeah, we were just talking about this earlier. So my, I was in the band for a long time called The Love Kill. And... There are videos. Google them. There YouTube. are videos. And we had a shirt that said the love kill and really small letters said I am champagne. And it was from, because I was obsessed with the opening scene in that Todd Solomon's movie happiness. Yeah. And it's with John Lovitz and I don't know who the woman is, but yeah, he like shit, (laughs) dude, it's so, it's one of the most brutal and amazing scenes ever because yeah, he like gets her this amazing gift and she's like, um, like basically blows him off. And yeah, his, his whole line was like, you are shit and I am champagne. And I just, I don't know. I, I really, I loved it. So we did that. And then, yeah, we reunited maybe like five or six years ago and played the grog shop in Cleveland. We played in Brooklyn and uh, we didn't want to play under the name Love Kill. So we, we played as I am champagne. Yes. It's delicious, yeah. delicious champagne. Yes. Um, I couldn't tell you last time I had champagne. 
Who cares? <laughs> um, okay, so um, uh, I'm, I'm having this complete and utter crisis. And I was watching um, recently because I don't get to watch television when it's on. I have to DVR everything and go back. So I was watching uh, John Oliver uh, okay. last week tonight, which I love that show because it doesn't depress me as much as Vice or The Daily Show until now. So he does this whole expose on expose, joke expose um, on, um, you know, child labor and like stores like The Gap and Old Navy and, you know, how the laws changed. And so, you know, everything you're buying was basically stitched by a child in another country um, and how we all suck and humanity's over. And I am just this giant guilt ridden mess. Like, like half the reason, like I stopped eating meat in October was because I just don't like the idea of something suffering for me to eat it. And then we've talked about how, well, I, I use, we use iPhones and people definitely suffered to make those. And some hurled themselves off a damn building. And I, you know, I look at the clothes I'm, I wear and I look at the you know toys my kids have, which are made in China, which means, you know, these toys were made in a factory that has no emissions control. That's why it's cold now in April and it's uh, basically I'm a giant mess and I don't know how to deal. <laughs> it is like, it's literally affecting me on a day in and day basis. So how are you? So, well, see, my, I have a simple solution to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, weed? Yeah. No, no, that's not my solution. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, maybe allegedly it's, uh, my solution is just like, just nihilism. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> Like, none of it matters. Like, the planet's going to implode at some point. Like, where none of us are going to exist. Like, it's like, it's all temporary. Who cares? I know. I just feel so bad. I don't want, like, anybody. It's like, whenever I buy fruit now, I'm like, did a child pick this? It's it's weird. It's like, I could give two fucks about an adult. You know what I mean? It's like, if an adult is out there doing it, I'm sorry. Even if you grew up that way, like, I feel sorry for your kid's self. But it just sounds, I don't know. It's like, the kid didn't do anything. You know? They didn't ask to be born. I don't know. It's weird. It's a... Uh, I think maybe it's yeah. getting bad. It's, it's a weird time. I agree. I agree. But I mean, you know, at least you're aware of that stuff. Like, I feel like uh, I don't know, man. I try to be <laughs> compassionate, and yet, you know, we have the we have the gap rewards card where everything we make, you know, like like you buy a purchase, you get money, you can like get the kids' clothes for super cheap, which is half the point. They're super cheap because they're over there, so it's. I, I used to have this philosophy, which was either go all the way or fucking forget it. So, like, if if you're going to eat meat and then you say fur is bad and whaling is bad, I was like, you're an asshole. You know, you don't get to, as Jamie Kilstein would say, Mr. Potato Head, you know? Right. Like, like, like the gray area. The, you know, well, it's a gray area. It's complex. Like, if, if, if your argument begins with the word well, you pretty much lost the argument as far as I'm concerned. So I used to try to be that way. I'm like, ah, it's like, what are you going to do? You know? And now all I, all I think about is, well, what can I do? And I'm trying to be conscious about cruelty-free things. And, you know, I have clothes that are made of leather, but I, I don't buy any more. And I try to be conscious about where my food comes from. But God damn it, it's hard. It's not even an ethical thing. It's just trying to do what you can. Well, I'm doing my part by... <laughs> Only doing laundry once a month <laughs> and only showering when I smell bad, which is pretty much every day. That's um, pretty much me. I wash yeah. my hair once a week. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you'll find that that a lot of people will say, yeah, that's actually too much. Yes. And if you're one of those people that washes it every other day, you're part of the problem. It's true. But 
enough about us. Let's get. I think Emo would have a lot to say about all of this. Dude, Emo has a lot to say about everything. That dude's incredible. Um, and let's let's check him out now, ladies and gentlemen. The great Emo Lamus. So we're already going. We're going. Now we are. Um, who did you perform with at Duncan Singh in Columbus? It was just us, and then oh, yeah? that's what that's we're awesome. doing in. Uh, I believe that's what we're doing in New York too. Oh yeah, it, yeah. It's the, the flow was like seamless though. It it it's uh, two people somehow works really well. Well, I think it's because you guys probably know each other so well. Well, in the subject matter that we. Uh, inherently gravitate towards is pretty there's a there's a parallel in both of our lives that that somehow just takes off and i don't know it's just a it's cohesive in that way are you do you perform music mm-hmm. too? okay yeah i mean you know i don't i don't know how many of the people are really familiar with the music <laughs> I don't know. I felt like after we did that live podcast with you, so many people came up to me about like you and Matt from Not A Serpent. Mm-hmm. Like, that was amazing. Like I felt like people were really into it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's... I'm not trying to sound flippant at all, but, uh, it, you know, they, they come away from it. They're like, wow, I, had the, I saw the show last night. Amazing that people even remember shows now anyway. Yeah. Because, you know... No, but, they record them on their iPhone. That's how they remember. They record right. them and then never watch them. That's right. where I was. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And so it just makes me wonder how much they retain from it. Do they do they go check it out later? I don't I don't know. Well, also like you have like 17 fucking bands, I feel like. Yeah, it's it's hard for people to navigate, but um that's a shame. <laughs> um man What's up you guys with you, mind Greg? that I'm eating my kale salad? No, dude, I'm I love starving. it. I'm starving. Yeah, I should be starving. I, I've my <clears throat> whole day yesterday was flights, delays, trains, with the gnarliest hangover of all time and some form of sickness going on. So I should be. Well, we could go eat after this if you're into that. Yeah, I man. think you should. You know, my mo is just to like. Fly with a hangover because I, if I don't, I feel hungover anyway. Yeah, you might as well just yeah. haze through the whole thing exactly. anyway, right? I agree. You said you've been, you went through a little down on New York phase. What was that about? Yeah, just like I don't know if it's just like the weather or like I was in California. I feel like I've in Florida. Like I feel like I've been really nice places and then come back here and I feel like you're just I don't know. And I feel like I've had so many friends move to like the West Coast and everyone seems so happy, but it's also like. <clears throat> Through social media, everyone just seems happy, anyways. <laughs> so it's like, how, I, but you're I judging don't, your friends' move to LA like based ju- on their social media. No, just like I don't know. Like I just feel like I don't know. I just been kind of a little down on New York lately. I don't know. Like I just feel like. What are you trying to say, Jonah? Just say it. Go ahead. Tell us now. No, dude. I'm like Break re- I'm resounding my lease next week. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> but I feel like if I ever left, I'd be like, why didn't I do that sooner? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. I, I, that was me coming to New York from Portland. That's how I felt. Yeah. Like, why didn't I do that? How long were you in Portland? Sooner? Like thirteen years. Okay. Uh, working at the same homeless shelter, but I think with California versus New York, that's like if anybody's just like hits the ground running there, then that's where they they're a West Coast person or they were meant to go there. Like right. it's not an arbitrary thing. You're either 
in my opinion, in my experience, it's like you're an East Coast person and you're kind of a West Coast person in terms of where you know you'll eventually end up or really fit in. So California people, it's just kind of arbitrary to me because like, well, if they like it, then that's because they were meant to be there. Because the weather, everything is just set up so specifically for a certain temperament, you know? Yeah, that's true. Different planet. But you know, that said, moved there for 10 months. I did a semester of college there, but it was so long ago. I'm I'm a big advocate of that if you can do it because it makes you appreciate your home. I mean, that's what I did. I lived there for like a year. Yeah. I was stoked to come home. Yeah, that's true. Back to New York. In New York, you can always come home to, man. True. Just slide right in. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe you need like a little life break or something. Maybe you need just a perspective shift or something yeah well i've been um trying to not smoke pot Mm. as a perspective shift and it's been a pretty huge shift so you're just drinking a lot yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) how did you know that you have the same like uh super hungover vibe that i i've have you just i mean you remind me of myself this is kind of like just barely getting by yeah exactly (laughs) yeah um, but I think that's good. I mean, I feel like <laughs> it is. It's great, man. <laughs> it's working for you, from what you've been telling me. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Wink, wink, nod, nod. What? Uh, how do Dude's you? It's a player still. <laughs> how do you feel, Emil? How do you feel about the the hangover? Just like rolling into the next party. My of? life. I mean, I don't really get hangovers in a sense because I just I've always been having one. Yeah. since I was 16. So so I kind of have that advantage, you know. I don't even identify it as a hangover, um, which I think is a good strategy. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like now's around the time when you're supposed to have a bit of a midlife crisis anyway. So uh, what do you think? what do you think a midlife crisis is? Is really what is that supposed to consist of? Do you think? I th- I don't know. Well, I feel like the kind of stereotype is like buying a bunch of shit you don't need or something to mm-hmm. try to feel young again. Um, but I feel like I sort of like dress and do the same shit I did when I was young, anyways. Yeah. Well, okay, right. That the the first part of the myth is kind of yeah erroneous. The whole like getting a Porsche thing, but then but the second part to try to feel young again. That makes total sense. Yes. And it doesn't even mean, oh, I really miss being young. I want to be young. But I think that once you're definitively not young, you face a whole new host of challenges. And and part of it is your inner narration asking yourself what you want to do with your life now that you're acknowledging half of your life is over and looking back at youth and realizing a lot of different things, but realizing centrally for me that you build the constructs of your life on basic assumptions that you make when you're young that are dangerous and wrong sometimes. And, and so, so now you have this task of, disassembling those illusions that you set your emotional expectations up on. And I think that that is very relevant in a musician's life. It could be 
I think it's probably even more rough for like ballet dancers or skateboarders or something where your body falls off halfway through life, and then and that's an actual crisis. I yeah, mean, that's a real crisis. Your definitely careers, or for a model who's it's over at twenty two. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you look in the mirror and you are definitively that's that's an inherent midlife crisis. I mean, you know, in the sense that you you just are forced to ask yourself. Uh, huge questions about what life means. What is it? You know, you have this certain amount of time. Ha- have you done the best you can do? What was it all a joke? You know, did you waste your time? You're waking up to so many huge questions. You know, and and wondering about wasting your time is like a wormhole. But like trying not to waste it anymore is like a daily fight. You know, but it's just something I I meditate on. In answer to, to your question about how I'm doing, probably has a lot to do with why I drink too, because it kind of like at the end of the day, after I try to sort of uh, heal or heal that wound by working and like w- working against the feeling of meaninglessness, then I have to like take the pressure off, and it's just kind of this formula that I use through drinking. You know, and it works. How does this, when you're meditating, are you like doing like a mantra based thing or like you're meditating on oh wasting time? Or, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious like how, how that works for you. Well, the the music is really, like if I talked any more about wasting time and meditating on youth in my songs, I would be a total broken record. But uh but I think the music is really the is the form of um on one hand just pure hard work that kind of transmutes a lot of the feelings of of aimlessness you know and kind of confusion transmutes them into something tangible that that is like it makes me feel better to do it uh and also philosophically allows me sort of somewhat of an arrival point that I can kind of explain my dilemma or human dilemma in my opinion or something. And so it's kind of a, it's, it's sort of a a temporary bandaid on the whole situation. I mean, what are you going to do as a human being to justify your life? You know, you read about businessmen like shooting themselves in the head because they're, they set up an erroneous set of expectations for themselves emotionally, you know, and and they turned the wrong corner somehow. It, it, what are you going to do that makes you feel like your life meant something, you know? These are questions that Piaget or somebody, you know, that, that mapped out psychological development says maybe arise only when you turn... 60 or something but these are but these are questions that really start i think popping up in your life as early as 15 or something but they come home to roost i think in this period of your life you know i mean do you feel like the conversations you have sort of with duncan because i feel like every time you guys talk it's like i'm like i i don't know a lot of people that kind of explore that kind of stuff maybe like on that kind of intellectual level or just like I don't know. You guys seem to have like this kind of framework to build on that. Yeah, the other night in Columbus was really intense, you know, because um, 
not only is it a live show where everybody, you know, I guess their expectations are pretty high because they their emotional attachment to Duncan is so deep, you know, for for a lot of the stuff that he's kind of bringing up in their life, you know, like a kid got on stage and was saying that that uh, he grew up Christian and fell out with his family and, and uh, abandoned the religion. And not until he heard Duncan did, was he able to pick up the Bible again and, and reinvestigate all of this stuff on his own terms, which is a really heavy, transformative moment, you know, for somebody. Um, it kind of puts it all in perspective, like what 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 a podcast can do to open a dialogue, you know? And so we, we just, I really want to get as dark as possible for my own therapeutic devices. I want to go to like the worst place and that, and my music, I've, I've, that's what I try to do because it, that's, what's going to make me feel better. Like I want to go to a place that I haven't yet resolved. That's haunting me, you know? I don't see the use in playing normal music. I don't see the use in like just basic chord progressions and musicology without it being balanced by some sort of intense investigation. So we did this uh we did this live podcast it was like two nights ago in Columbus and uh it was just all about death and and the Buddha leaving the castle to try to discover himself. Um, and it, I really made me feel better in my life, you know, just to, to talk about that stuff. And, and Duncan just texted me as I was walking in the door about sort of how amazing it, it was. And I think it's super surreal to like sit on a stage and, even, you know, try to wrap your head around that that's a commodity, that people are paying $25 <laughs> at a door for you. I mean, it's very much like going to see Alan Watts or something, you know, like people are, we're all looking for a form of some answers or some sympathy, you know, for the pain that we're going through. And so you're totally right. Like the conversations with Duncan... Uh, are a form of therapy that I need. And it's not like... A lot of times I don't realize it, but I'm looking back now and I'm thinking, God, you know, thank God that I have this uh, person that just comes into my life every once in a while and I can unfold, like, the things that are bothering me the most. You know, how many people do you know that'll help you navigate that stuff? Yeah, that's incredible. Um I should probably mention, talking about Duncan Trussell, um, Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and Emil's been doing live podcasts with him. Um, also, I, I'm always going to forget this, Emil uh, has a new record out, Lilacs and Champagne, is that out? It's it's It comes out in like, maybe a couple weeks um, on Temporary Residence. Okay, cool. Um, and... I feel like I always, I feel like whenever you're here, we never talk about music. I'm always like, oh, I should. That's okay. The thing I mean, you're working on. Yeah, you. There might be someone that would rather we did, but <laughs> but I mean, we are talking about. Yeah, that's true. Music. It is in, going off track, dude. That is true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, and and 
the, his audience, you know, when we do these live things, it's interesting for me to have to kind of, someone who grew up in like a super buried subculture, you know, something that was kind of obscure, it's interesting for me to be thrown in front of an audience who has no idea, you know, maybe who I am or whatever and um, and just have to kind of meet them face-to-face on some musicological level that we all understand, which for me is like I think the Beatles is really the language that in, in, in our century or whatever was set up for like sort of a confessional sort of type of... Well, John Lennon especially is the, is this thing that we all understand. It's like you pick up an acoustic guitar and you bear yourself on a level that's potentially just totally scathing and, and difficult and raw and angry. And the common person can absorb that. They're like, cool. <laughs> I like this stuff. I mean, do you think... Something that I've been thinking about lately is like, do you think being a musician and maybe being involved in like punk and those subcultures is sort of like, and like Arrested Development in a sense? Like, do you feel like you're like missing out, or like, do you think feel like you're not evolving into this other thing because you're kind of like holding on to this kind of real youth based kind of subculture ever? It can be. I mean, I think you have to be a little bit careful with what you're putting stock into, you know? I mean, at this age, you're supposed to be transcending all those trappings, you know? Like, you can start out being... I mean, I watched a lot of musicians, like, phase out, you know? Which I think was really healthy for a lot of kids who... And very trippy to watch people whose life was based around music and you know, when they're 13 years old. I mean, their whole life, their waking reality, this is their religion. And then to see them at 28, you know, becoming a realtor and selling their bass, you know, the best bass player you've ever seen in your life, you know. But you're like, no, this makes sense. Like, like, like we should probably weed some of these people out. <laughs> <laughs> but, and also, like, being in bands as a kid, too, like the ego battles that are so inevitably heated with people's identities crashing up against each other. And I mean, the history of bands is that, you know, but it kind of like, it it unravels, makes everything make a little bit more sense too. when like you've given your life to music and then you see people kind of jumping off the train and kind of kind of going off in these different directions and and i wake up and i'm still doing this this thing that i always did there's there's definitely an aspect of it that could be perceived as totally immature for sure and like frozen in time but that's just more pressure on me to do a really good job at what i'm doing and so across these four bands you know that gives me a landscape of, of things I can do um, that normal m- musician trajectory usually doesn't allow. Usually you're just the bass player in a band and you just play, you know, 
these four notes kind of like the Pixies or say, you know, or whatever. Right. And, and so I really have to squeeze this orange and like get every bit out of it and make something that it's part of my little midlife crisis, make something that like really transcends this medium, you know, in my, in my way or something, breaking through the wall to the other side and, and making something that, you know, I could, like a kid could see like John Lennon or something, you know, like they could perceive it as like that heavy and that meaningful in their life, you know? And so I guess sometimes there are moments where you actually feel like you're doing that, you know, it's pretty rare, but. <laughs> so, I mean, like how, how do you sort of decide like what you're going to focus on having? Like, cause I saw, I know Ohm's playing Vita soon. Mm-hmm. I know you have this thing coming out. I mean, how do you sort of, navigate that stuff it's uh all determined by deadlines so i just work every day on you know whatever is uh currently my my obsession or whatever that that week or something uh depending on if i've been sampling a lot or if i'm you know got a traffic ticket and i'm pissed off and writing songs about that um so then the deadlines give everything shape like they just they come down and and that determines how i'm gonna physically attack all the different stuff that i have it's kind of hard to even explain honestly it's just uh and it's it's like being a functioning schizophrenic which is i think something i thrive on a little bit you know it's it's like a way of making things difficult that I have to solve mathematically and making records is that it's it's largely like problem solving is kind of one of the main skills. I, I don't think people really understand that sometimes because <clears throat> they put the responsibility on the engineer and the producer or whatever it could be the label or the artist to, that designs the cover. But I do all that. So I can't, I have no parental entity, you know, that's helping me. And I like it that way. So I have to solve every little problem and that, you know, it probably makes me feel good to surmount all these little challenges, you know? I mean, sometimes I feel a little bit like it's an immature pursuit or whatever like you're you're saying but i'm not really like in it for live music or i'm in it to make something that really kind of stands outside of normal genres and and scenes and you know something that kind of isn't just basic music i don't even really care what it sounds like i, I think just they call it art yeah, well, there's okay. that. <laughs> it's okay to use that word. I forgot. You're, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> it's not a dirty word. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't make me happy to just. I I remember being, I think maybe thirteen, and opening up a paper in Chapel Hill, and it was a picture of a band, and they were playing that Friday at like the cool college bar or something. And I remember just thinking, looking at their faces and being like, I don't want to do that. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> like just kind of almost pitying them. Yeah. It just, and I don't know what it was. I really don't know what it was, but it was this sense that this kind of this rat race or something. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the things I'm kind of skirting around is like the Keith Richards archetype and the David Bowie archetype is this idea of the guy that quits the rat race and breaks through and, and goes off and lives in this ivory tower and, you know, sends out transmissions, you know, to the world from, from there. But it's a, it's a lie, you know, it's a, it's a myth because those people have to wake up and work just like everybody else. And that's kind of part of, part of the realization I have to like swallow sometimes is that like, I'll never feel like I did it. I'll never feel like I actually arrived anywhere. That's a difficult thing for me to swallow because you kind of, there's part of, you know, whether Gene Simmons is saying, you know, you pick up a guitar because you want a girl to like you or whatever. There's part of this very early assumption of uh, of what you want out of life when you start playing music. It's very vague, you know. Even I, when, when I, I went to a talent show in uh, seventh grade and these guys... The curtain opened up. People, you know, everything everybody was doing was just absolutely terrible and the most hideously embarrassing, you know, comedic way. And then at the end, the curtain opened up and these three guys, buddies of, of mine, played like, I think it was like Louis Louis or something or something just really hilariously bad. But I didn't even know that they played music and no one did. And... When they started playing, the entire auditorium just had an immediate revelation. We were just like, like, you can do that? We were blown away. And it was terrible. But it didn't matter. I mean, it sounded like kind of like heaven to us. And I just focused on this drummer who was just, all he had was a snare drum. And he was just kind of like you know, rat-a-tatting away. This dude with, like, a skinny tie on a keyboard and this kid uh, with a shitty, like, toy metal guitar. And they, like, nudged a microphone up to him, which was a big mistake. And <laughs> the entire audience, especially, really, the girls, stood up, rushed the stage, and just were mesmerized. Like, it, and that was the day... Like, I went home and I told my mom what I wanted to do. I wanted to play music. I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to play drums. And so we went and bought drumsticks and, like, a drum pad and uh, for, like, practicing paradiddles. And I, was, and I brought it to school the next day. Like, I was so confident. And those guys in the band saw me carrying the drumsticks and they were like, Oh man, do you want to be in our band? <laughs> I was like, yeah, and, and then that just started like the whole, the whole thing of like trying to decipher some Def Leppard intro over and over, whatever you know, whatever right. you do at that age, and and uh, like it was that stupid and and like silly and immature that that moment or whatever, and it wasn't necessarily me seeing the girls rush the stage like Gene Simmons would say or anything like that. 
But somehow in that little lightning bolt moment when you see what they're doing and you decide you want to do it, somewhere deep under everything, wrapped inside this vague impulse, is some form of assumption, something, assumption that's actually very elaborate about what you think it will give you or bring you, a form of happiness, right? And I I wouldn't think this was interesting unless I believe that maybe everybody goes through that in some way, you know, everybody on the subway train on the way here, you know, they're hurrying somewhere to get theirs, you know, or to like get somewhere that they perceive at some earlier age maybe will bring them a form of happiness. Or maybe they're just like dealing with a crushing compromise of a job that they think will sustain them while they achieve that thing, you know? And so I think we're all at various different stages of, of like wondering if that assumption we made was erroneous or will actually bring us happiness, you know? And I envy the people that think that it's all simple, you know, and it, it will, uh, you know, life is just, you just got to try your best or whatever, you know, because I just, I think it's much more, uh, um, complicated than that to, to really wonder what the nature of happiness is beyond even just the simple brain chemistry of the serotonin firing and you believing that you're on your way somewhere or like you really like eating sopapillas or some, some, some idea that like something is going to make me happy today, you know, the more I meditate on that and, and, and try to pull it apart, the more it just kind of unravels a lot of the assumptions that I was born of. And it, it's a disturbing process. <laughs> I think using the word happiness is too, uh, it's not, I think, especially for our people who uh, pursue artistic endeavors, it's like, some of them, that's all that they, they have to do it. I, I kind of get the feeling that maybe happy or not, you would need to do this. You know, um, people, I, I definitely know the type that, that just has to express themselves and, and also and also gets a reward from building. It's like it, it's almost the same as if you're a, a house builder and you build your contractor and build houses when it's done and you can look at it. It's really satisfying immensely satisfying and it's the same for artists and i think one thing about artists is that they're never totally satisfied with the last house they built you know like they look at it and they think okay i can do better next time and at least career artists you know um so i don't know if you're ever happy (laughs) yeah you're totally right i i i think that i wonder if as i achieve bigger and better things, you know, and part of my brain gets satisfied with it, which feels good. You know, I'm like, oh, I got some fucking respect for once in my life. (laughs) And then, and then part of my brain, maybe this clever part is like reshifting the disappointment into a different area, you know, unconsciously so that I'll have more song material. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, I've seen songwriters that, I don't know how to describe this, but but I think everybody, 
<sighs> I've seen songwriters almost set up situations in their life to get song material before. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's so dark. I've I seen drummers do it. They weren't even writing anything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. That seems incredibly corrupt to me. Uh, but I know where they're coming from. I know where they're coming from the desperate need to be in, tragic in, or like maybe engage in the, the alchemical process of art. So they kind of need some fuel or something. But, but yeah, I mean, the tragic thing, yeah, you're, you're right. That's like, it's a form of being emotionally halted. And maybe music is where their ego gets a boost. And so they're kind of like routing the tragedy into their right. material. That's really fucked up. <laughs> but it happens a lot. <laughs> I didn't I mean, I'm oblivious to some of this stuff until I until I met certain somewhat tragic characters that I've seen kind of flip material like that. But um I don't there's a foreboding sense of where those people are going to end up, you know, because like you said, to be a lifer, to be a career artist, there's a very delicate, specific balance of how your dissatisfaction um, feeds seemlessly into your work. And, and you're, you're right. It's maybe a form of, I don't know if it's a bipolar thing or like, you know, like Hendrix's the manic depression song right. or whatever. There is a, there is a, a sense in which a gloom comes over me and it's visible and it's really, it's really, uh, it's like all the molecules in my body. And there's only one thing in the world that can alleviate that thing. And that's picking up a guitar and getting rid of that thing by putting it into this compact little right. thing called a song which is really weird that's a really strange way of being but you're probably right there's an inherent unhappiness to that kicks off that process you know because right. very plainly why would you ever seek to change your circumstances or the world if you thought the world was great and perfect. You know, I mean, you just wouldn't have any reason to rearrange things and try to, you know, proclamate some sort of great, uh, you know, uh, you know, some sort of philosophical understanding of like what it is that's so fucked up about this situation. You know, you have to have some dissatisfaction. So it's certainly... A beautiful thing you know to come from a place like you know i guess the stories the van goghs or you know these stories that that's the basis of most hollywood movies and everything everything that we celebrate whether it's christ or buddha there's always at the base of it someone who is really disturbed with the status quo around them right. but how do you prevent that kind of dissatisfaction from like just spiraling into nihilism where you're like i'm just writing i'm using this like vocabulary that people have always used i'm using these strings and this tuning it's probably been done before like what's the point of this <laughs> like, i totally do... agree yeah <laughs> um well i think you know i cannot stand when people say you have to be an egomaniac or something to to be a musician or entertainer or whatever i don't think that's true at all but um but I suppose you do have to have just enough 
ego to believe that you actually could uh, say something or put something into the cultural lexicon that's worth other people viewing, you know. And that, you know, that that should be something you don't take too seriously sometimes, you know, that, that you should have a sense of humor about doing that. But I think grasping the fact that that this language and, and um, dialogue is open-ended and that you do have the ability to step into this historical dialectic or teleology and, and, and you can contribute to it. There's the sense of responsibility in that, that, that like, if you could say something that was important and you sense your ability to do that somewhere down inside you, if you believe you have the potential, then it's your job to like wrench that out. And like, like being a great mathematician or anything, it's your job to try to resolve that equation and, and your raw curiosity to, to just see what it says, just to decode it yourself just drives you. But there's some sense that like, if you don't do it, then someone else won't you know, that it won't be done. And that's definitely, uh, the other night, somebody asked me if I went on drug history, what would I do? And I was told the story of Kepler. And that's exactly what happened. Like he, he had a sense within him that maybe the earth wasn't the center of the galaxy. He didn't know. He didn't, he didn't hypothesize it, but he traveled you know and and gave his life to this sense that maybe he needed to demythologize this thing that we were all accepting is true and so after he finally gets to Tycho Brahe you know who's like basically this totally corrupted hedonist that's like having orgies in this huge castle it has a golden nose because his nose fell off in some leprosy situation or something. It's only after he dies that, that Kepler finally gets access to his, his journals of how he's watched the stars move. And so then, eventually, at the end of his life, he, 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 he hypothesizes with evidence that maybe the Earth isn't the center of the galaxy. It's just, and it's like if he had not have done that, followed that sense of curiosity like all of our lives would be different the way we define our place in the world you know in the galaxy and so it sounds lofty it sounds pretentious uh but you have to get over that and you have to believe that there's some worth in just communication articulation in art in music like if there wasn't then why did all these other people do it? And what's the use of John Lennon? What's the use of of Bob Marley or any of these people? Like you, you're spitting on that if you don't think that it's worth reinvestigating the form, you know? Well, and your audience is what validates you. You know, you start off with youthful confidence and a little bit of ego because I honestly believe otherwise you're not going to be able to get going. But then eventually, even no matter how small it is, it's that audience that, that answers your question. Yeah, I do need to address this. Yeah. You know? 
I agree with that. No matter how small it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless you're Daniel Johnson or somebody, like, <laughs> you're going to need somebody there to kind of convince you to keep going. Well, the ir- yeah, I don't know what you mean by that, but the irony with him is that he really was uh, kind of lifted up and, and given a career. Like, he actually met with his time in an interesting, successful way. Yeah, but he it took a while, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. But even then, I mean, like, with all the thousands and thousands of artists that have fallen to the side and never been heard and probably created just mind-blowing things, uh, he's a monster celebrity, you know? Yes, yeah, true. You know? You know, once you get a movie made about you like that and... Sonic Youth is championing you, even in the 80s. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's pretty... True. That's true. Uh, but I find that really interesting that he met with success and in that way. I mean, certainly there is some tragedy going on in there, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think tragedy is kind of, like, inherent in success or not always? I mean, is is anything, like... Do you think anyone has like kind of a utopian existence? Katy Perry? Does Katy Perry? <laughs> That's actually a really good analogy. Is, um, is she like like looking at Instagram, like crying in bed and that's just like the like side of her we never see? I don't know. <laughs> I totally yeah, I wonder that too. I I'm sure she has um a lot of challenges. And I and I think she probably she seems like she's very good at attacking them and surmounting them she's good at what she does you know um she's a pretty good example of someone who does totally look from the outside like they have the perfect career or something but i'm sure it's more complicated than that but yeah i mean all the whole the story of mankind you know back to the garden of eden (laughs) there's always the drama comes from surmounting tragedy right like without tension without challenge we have nothing and we'll never live in a world that doesn't have challenge tragedy ever so it's pointless to even wonder if that exists or will ever exist you know so so not only is that tragedy a part of all of the fabric of our lives whether we like it or not but all the great stories that we are regurgitating and making into Hollywood films. and Like, in fact, that's a really good way to look at it. You know, like, a movie can't move anywhere. It can't move forward without a sense of surmounting something. There has to be tension, you know? And the reason why it's a, a film that you even go pay to go see is because there's some sense of the hero's journey or, or some someone surmounting some tragedy. So I think not only is there no way to not have tragedy, but, you know, the first noble truth in Buddhism is like life is tragic, you know. I don't think you'll ever escape that. And, and so in a way, I think being a healthy person even, especially a healthy artist, is being able to turn that into something like turn it into something that works uh, articulation about maybe why it's 
it's not as bad as you think, you know, or whatever. It could be imagined by John Lennon. But, you know, you can see a direct link there, like him saying to you, imagine a world where, you know, that the tragedy didn't dominate your life, you know, but that's like, that's total idealism. But that's the kind of escape that I think people go pay $14 to sit down in a theater and watch, you know, but it's how it always goes back to the same roots of storytelling from biblical situations or the Vedas or, you know, there's always some story of Krishna rejecting his destiny or there's always, it could be eight mile, you know, it could be karate kid. There's always some guy who's down on his luck, who's getting beaten down and he rises up. You yeah, know, well, it's all the same the story. fantasy. You want to, you want to know that it's possible. <clears throat> right. You want hope. True. Really. I mean, how do you think what a love story is? It's about hope. Yeah. <laughs> How do you think that sort of technology figures into that kind of like current day? I mean, do you feel like that's something that is bringing people together or kind of se- separating? I mean, do you think that because it feels like that's kind of like the biggest game changer kind of in, I feel like, humanity now? You know, I mean... A lot of people have a lot of different ways to attack that subject, but I always come back to the fact that um, that things really don't change that much. I mean, they and they can't, just like we're saying. Well, I, I'm thinking about the next record. I'm thinking about basing around the idea of the Garden of Eden because I feel like as much change as you perceive, as much change as you think technology brings. You know, we already went through the 80s, you know, and that was this dawn of the new world, sort of. And what really changed, you know? Uh, I think that the the moral, the, the, the morality play that has always uh, persisted through human life is still going on behind whatever dressing you put on it, you know? So just like Adam and Eve kind of sitting in a garden, um, staring off into the sky and wondering what to do with this idyllic little planet, you know, that we're sitting on, I really don't think things have changed. Our speculations on God and our speculations on the meaning of life have never been answered. No one is offering any actual answer it, because it can't be resolved. So you can talk all day about finding a new planet, you know, or or aliens or whatever, you know, but you know, the morality play cannot end. It doesn't it doesn't end, you know. And so I think people like to sell solutions and they i mean that's like the biggest product in the world you know whether it's religion or the nutribullet or like you know ron popeel's knives there's something that's gonna save you you know this idea and that just points to the fact that no one's ever figured out what the hell it's actually gonna be you know so i think uh i don't know i really don't think that things change all that much i also uh, that would be a really weird insult to the past of of humanity to you know radically change it 
Yeah, I mean, doesn't it just actually make things that much more blah in a way? You know, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I mean, like picture that same person having to like having to farm two hundred years ago and like understand like the weather system and try to live in harmony uh, with that. You know, that's maybe that would have been a, a much more profound. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe not, but a more profound like hands in the soil like you know getting to know the earth and why you know why you're on it way of life i don't know rather than just like flipping through various clickbait you know <laughs> it's not for me to say it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah now you can click through clickbait yeah you can back then you had to just skip a stone in the water true so that was Click, Not incredibly skip, profound. Click, skip. <laughs> You're right. We're in the same place. I mean, how do you think? Like, how do you think? Kind of attachment figures into that as well. Like, because I feel like that's something that keeps coming up, sort of for me. Like when I think about these questions, mm-hmm. like you attach yourself to something, it's probably going to disappoint you, right? Is that the definitely? Nature of it? Yeah. I mean, don't we all have? nightmares where you roll over and your girlfriend is dead or you know you or you just go through odd scenarios in your brain where like everything you've based on your life on is taken away from you or like that's why you go see Liam Neeson movies where (laughs) (laughs) his wife is stolen from him I mean there's yeah we all are haunted by the idea that I I love this Michael J. Fox quote because when I was a kid that was like he was the dude, you know, and uh, he said, I can't remember if he was saying he was an alcoholic throughout it all or what it was, but he was just saying that like every day of his life, he could never believe that he was the celebrity that that people were making him into, you know, so his family ties is exploding and he does Back to the Future, which was an earthquake of a cultural moment. You know, I think it's probably the reason why I started skateboarding is that open, the opening scene where he's holding onto the backs of cars. Like we hadn't seen anything that cool ever for a kid our age, you know, whatever. And so he said something like as his career was exploding and, you know, he had more money than he knew what to do with. And he every day felt like someone, was about to knock on his door like he could almost hear the knocking he was just always waiting for it and that the door would open and they'd say okay it's all just this is just a joke like, <laughs> a practical joke on you he couldn't he couldn't believe that it was really authentic you know and he wouldn't let himself maybe to his own credit or whatever believe in the myth that that they were selling to kids or people that wanted to be just like him or some shit. I just thought I like that a lot that that he that he just refused to or couldn't believe the thing that he himself was even selling, you know. But I feel I feel like I feel like that's a really healthy way to come at this business, I guess, but it's also really kind of sad because you want the magic, you know. And you you want to believe in the magic that that you grew up seeing on the TV, and and then you get older, and you're like, it's all 
it's all a game of illusion, like Orson Welles said filmmaking was. You know, it's all just a magic trick, you know, a craft. But it seems like so many people are kind of the opposite of that now, too. It's like these, if you're whatever, I mean, on a reality show or something, I think these people have elevated themselves to something and it's like well like what have you like what have you really done like you argue with people or something <laughs> like this this kind of like unearned sure. confidence i feel just like kind of permeates like so much of pop culture yeah that's annoying i think that's a good way to put it too it kind of just <laughs> comes along with with fame being um stripped of its its old glory days power you know so it's kind of this th- thing where people respect it less or something. I-, I could be, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. But, um, you know, in the Marilyn Monroe kind of Joe DiMaggio era of, of the ivory tower, you know, the super distant, larger than life celebrity, it was a completely different thing. You know, I remember my mom talking about, you know, getting the first TV or going to drive-in movies, you know, and a kid back then would never, ever equate themselves with somebody on a TV. That's just not well, something you Well, you also weren't do. ever la- shown their human side, you know? Like, that's the, there is the exposure now. It's a big p- part of it, and yeah. And it's partly, part of it is cultural, part of it is the technology that you, you have access to people all the time and paparazzi give you access but it's all yeah it's also very cultural i was listening to an interview with a reporter recently and they were asking about like uh clinton's you know clinton was the first time that a president or a big figure like that had been called on but for his personal affairs you know literally an affair which at the time wasn't a you know i mean he didn't get in trouble for uh, the affair. He got in trouble for lying about it. He wasn't actually breaking the law. And this guy was, you know, the, the report, the, uh, the interviewer asked him about, cause this is somebody who had covered Kennedy. He was like, yeah, we all knew about it. We all knew about his affairs. He was protected. Just, it wasn't, he, he, that's what he asked. He said, you know, were, was there a reason? Were you afraid? And he goes, no, we just, you just didn't talk about it. That wasn't news is actually what he said. We didn't consider that news. This is the president of the United States. Like, we don't care who he's stupping. Stooping. How do you say that? <laughs> I have no idea. The commodity like, was We were different. dealing with news, you know? Like, we were covering the fucking news, the communism and whatever. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I have a, a brother who's a journalist, a brother-in-law, and he, he lives out of the country. And I remember he came came back one time and he walked in and the Weather Channel is on and he was infuriated. He's infuriated by the Weather Channel. He's like... Weather's not news. <laughs> you can't have a whole network based on the weather. <laughs> but the economy is just this rushing river of of cash and statistics and who's clicking on what, you yeah, know? And so true. whatever, it's just a mercenary momentum, you know? It's just wherever it needs to go that they're determining money can come back. Right. That's where it goes. So, yeah, the commodity has changed. I mean, fame as a commodity has changed. I feel like there's a loss of, I mean, I don't know. This sounds so old school. But, like, is there a loss of dignity? I mean, you know, I think that's one thing that's lacking in, in especially in America, is there's not much dignity. You know, like this guy, these reporters not reporting 
on it it would have been news you know what i mean like sure it could have been it could have been news but like he his response was that's not news you know like he didn't believe it was news and he didn't he wasn't going to expose it as news because he didn't feel it was news and it's not you know like that's some there's like i think that's like a certain amount of dignity in your job and and in what you want to be there's not really any if this rushing river of of money there's no dignity money right but there's no dignity to the mainstream in the sense that if the mainstream is a rushing river like literally there's no dignity to it you know it's it it snakes and shapes to wherever money right. goes right. and so it's by nature a bastardizing force so then as that thing defines you know current trends you know or whatever which is pretty useless and arbitrary um and clickbait and whatever then you know revolutionaries or rebels come out from the side and try to insert you know sort of eternal truths or whatever into this thing and they either get integrated or shut out and and the people that get integrated generally go to the dark side <laughs> and just become part of that commodification force right. you know and so you know i guess if you're analyzing this current moment on a rushing river that we're at you know you're you want to look at, out at the people who are trying to infiltrate it you know that like the devos of your time like a band that made it on to mtv and all that stuff um and was one of the most famous bands in the world but were total subversives you know they were completely sliding a pill into the mouths of unknowing frat boys singing whip it you know or whatever and they were they they knew exactly what they were doing you know so right. you, you want to kind of seek out those people the fugazis or whatever who are flipping right. the script and totally uh rewriting how you can do things you know but most people aren't aren't really interested in that they're interested in what's making the money you know i mean that's why we decided to work with temporary residents i mean all about the money <laughs> You know, I mean, I think that what complicates those myths is that people like the Beatles and Bob Marley or whatever, just the T-shirts that you buy at the mini mall are like those 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 people intersected with moments in, in time and space where they were massive celebrities and they um, they experienced the ultimate, you know, levels of success. So... No matter how rebellious Keith Richards, you know, thinks he is or whatever, he's he's just in such a privileged position and and little kid on the sidewalk, you know, playing guitar to nobody or whatever. He's, he wants his dream is to be this guy. It's just like I have to point out here though, because the Lennon reference, the Beatles got to where they were playing very schlocky commercial music. I mean, mm -hmm. it was it was. It was better than most of what was going on at the time, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Abbey Road. They were playing, like, fucking teen pop hmm. songs. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I mean, and a lot of people have argued that that was part of Lennon or McCartney. Their genius was that they, once they had built, that, that they knew what they were doing and that they got, they, you know, they dished like it was out. calculated? Yeah, it was calculated. They dished out 
the schlock to get them to the point where they could do what they wanted to, to do. And if that's true, I, I totally salute that. I think that's, a, that's fine. I think that's a great way to do it because they did then contribute some great art. But he did, you know, he worked his way up there with, the, with what I think is not really amazing. That's a art. great point. I mean, but the, the reason, kind of like an ugly duckling story or whatever, the, the reason why we all worship them unequivocally is because they like the Buddha leaving his castle and ending up under the Bodhi tree or whatever. They went through a transformation that was so unprecedented that it almost proves the existence of some higher intelligence. You know, they, they, they contradicted the rushing river. They right. contradicted. I, agree. I totally yeah. agree. But, so, so that part of but the he story, wasn't, he wasn't, the the masses did not bring True. him to, to up based on his art. Like, yeah, I don't think. No, so I agree with you. That sort of rise, and then the whole cultural blossoming that happened with the hippies and everything. Um, that it just complicates the whole story more <laughs> for a kid now that's sitting at guitar center, you know, trying to buy their first mixer to be like tiesto or whatever right it's just you know they it's such a long road to figuring out this shit you know and i kind of feel bad for you know this like kind of innocent people that i mean you know i guess it was the same way but i i came at it with this idea that i was outside the culture so like my expectations might have been a little bit different but um, I think it just complicates the myth even more that those people uh, ended up in such a complicated moment of time and space. Right. They and then then they they were rebels in their way, you know. But you're right; it was built on top of a bed or a foundation of commercialism for sure, you know. But then you see someone like the Doors crash through that and just. You know, immediately they're obnoxious and crazy right. and insane and doing 10-minute breakdowns of the end on top of the pops, you know. There's these myths out there that are just so singular that as a kid, I think you think you can access those things. And they're just very, they're the ex extreme exceptions. Yeah, well, know? they also were there at the beginning of it, you know. Like it was easier to be radical when before everything had been done. True. Same with painting. <laughs> I mean, that maybe that's why everybody's so kind of embarrassingly obsessed with like laptop music right now. It's just like it, it's just being perceived as like this radical new form. It's not even that new. I mean, really, most of what you hear out there, but they just you know the the machine has to tell you that they've got this new solution you know this new skrillex thing or whatever <laughs> you know you just can't even believe how amazing this is you know you have to and people love that that drug they love the idea that that there's this thing that's like never been done and it's just revolutionary and they just line up around the block you know <laughs> to, to to kind of witness it's like a medicine show really it's just the same old trick you know but at, you know at the same time people are gonna you know hundreds of people go see you and duncan talk about whatever you guys talk about 
Yeah, no, I was thinking that as I was saying it, you know? <laughs> I mean, in terms of a medicine show or whatever, but, I mean, a literal medicine show, right? Like, you're giving people psychological medicine. But, uh, I mean, that's the task, though, is to break through the wall of entertainment, right? And and to to... That's what I was saying by insisting we get as dark as possible, you know, to like we spent the majority of our show the other night just talking about mortality and death. And sure, that's a commodity and goth music or something, but like the way we were doing it, it's it's the diametrically opposed uh, product that an entertainer is supposed to bring. You know, it, it's truly depressing. A lot of it. It's very hard to just ingest and walk away from a show and be like so glad i paid 25 dollars for this you know and so it didn't you know you can't just like decimate people and leave them with nothing you know the task is to take them out into the deepest waters and then provide some sense of you said hope maybe some just some sense of I don't want to say resolution or solution or, or those other words, but some sense of maybe pragmatism or like practicality or sympathy, you know, of like life is hard. Like, you know, we're all in this together and we're all experiencing the same shit, you know? And, and I think it does a sewage or I think it does heal people like to to witness other people just being raw humans you know and it and it helps me for sure and i'm addicted to people's art that do that for me you know and i think we we all really secretly crave that stuff you know it's just a matter of like finding it and some people are a little more curious than others to dig it out Yeah, that's good for me, dude. It's good ending. Yeah, yeah. I was the whole thing we were saying. I was going to come and tell the story about. I know. I was just thinking about that right when we were finishing. I was like, "Wait, what were we supposed to do again?" Well, I mean, we can always do this again, and and I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I was going to tell a story about leaving LA uh, when I lived with Duncan because uh, it's pretty funny, but um. But there's always, yeah, other other times to do that. I think today we literally needed to go through some therapy. Yes. And, and the, like, even if no one out there got anything from it, I think it was probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, do you remember at the live show when he covered Suicide is Painless, the MASH theme song? And Brad was like, oh, my God, this is from MASH. And then we all started getting kind of freaked, like, are we going to have to pay licensing or royalties to that? And, you know, something my wife deals with on a daily basis. And she went, do you think enough people are going to be listening to your podcast to care? Nope. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, not to toot our own horn, but um, that last live podcast was so great. But I had so many people come up to me like... Having emo play two songs and then Matthew from Not a Surf, like, oh, so good. dude, those two dudes, like, what they can just do, just them and an acoustic guitar, is unreal. It's insane. 
Um, yeah, Emil, yeah, and I just saw, um, after we taped this, uh, Emil did, uh, two live, po- we talk about the Duncan Trussell Family Hour live podcast, he did two at the Bell House, I went to both of them, sat in the front row, and, yeah, it was incredible, Emil played, like, three songs up front, and then it was a panel with, um, Duncan, Emil, and Alex and Allison Gray, um, who are these incredible artists, um, from the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and yeah, it was it was so awesome to hear him kind of talk about. They talked about kind of the nature of art and um, psychedelics, and and really cool, really kind of what a guru guru is. Excuse me, and yeah, it was awesome. So I think Duncan's going to release those at some point. You should check them out. Um, yeah, Emil's Lilacs and Champagne record just came out. I know he's gigging with Holy Sons. I know Ohm and Grails are still active. So. Emil's DJing Friday. He's he's all over the place, but yeah, he's he's a great dude. And um, like I said up front, there's a piece I just did, kind of about the day we recorded this podcast, um, called Crate Digging with Lilacs and Champagne. Um, that's up on Vice's music site, Noisy Now. All right, so on. check that out. Um, you see, you check me out on Yahoo, uh, Sprint Fan Connection. See me talking with lots of artists of different ilk with fans. Super cool. Fans just call in and can ask their artists whatever they want. It's actually, I, I love the Was hell out of like it. Was this like the Counting Crows thing you did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did that way back with uh, Mr. Duritz. Um, you know, with our mutual friend, Chris Caraba. You know, whatever. We know a few folks. We you know a couple you know, people. You know everybody. I know a few people. Steven knows a few people. Uh, uh, by the way, if you are uh, one of those people and you enjoy our podcast, um, our new thing is a dollar a podcast. Ripping it off from uh, Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History, which is an amazing podcast. Please listen to it. So if you listen to this episode right now, just take a moment, go to goingofftrack.com, click that donate button, send over a dollar. You're basically, it's what, what you would tip someone at Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you tip someone at Starbucks, I guess. So- so if everybody dig this episode and you just a dollar a podcast, man, a dollar a podcast, which means if you're one of those people who feels really guilty and you've listened to all of our podcasts, I mean, don't let us prohibit you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. This is 150 something. That's $150, <laughs> which is a lot of storage yeah. space, you know? Yeah. Put we'll round thing, down. We don't, we don't archive these. We leave them up. We pay for storage. You know, we, we do that because we loves to do it. And it's a fun monthly fee to store something that basically only exists in numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah, do that if you want to and check us out. Um, or if, if you don't want to do that, next best thing is leave us a positive comment on iTunes. or Oh, yeah, please. Send us an email. That's always on good. Facebook.com slash going off track. Yeah, send us, send us something. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter. Blah, 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 blah. You know where to find us if you want to check us out. But yeah, yeah you, thanks. Found, you found us. You, you've made it this far. Yeah, if you made it this far. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks to email. Thanks to everyone at Temporary Residence. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. And we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.